So, Will. Yes? Last week, to kick off our discussion, we talked about some of our favorite fake countries in movies. But this week had me wondering, what is some of your favorite fake history of real countries that has been worked into movies? So I feel like you're going to be better equipped to answer this than I am, just because, like, full-scale, like, mythic history is more in the ancient realm, and that's more your speed. Like, I don't really know anything that happened before the Middle Ages. Right. So I, I thought in a couple of different directions with this. My specialty being U.S. history, I obviously thought about national treasure, which is chock full of magnificent fake history. (laughs) Just so much great fake history in that movie. We talked a lot about that in our National Treasure Book of Secrets episode, which is chock full of great fake history. Especially because we didn't talk about much of anything in our first National Treasure episode. Right. So, like, the whole conspiracy with Mount Rushmore I think is very funny, but I don't think that quite fits what we're talking about here. I thought about Betsy Ross, who the only source for her being the person who designed the U.S. flag is, like, her grandson a hundred years later. Okay. I didn't actually realize that. Yeah, there are no contemporary sources suggesting that Betsy Ross designed the flag. She definitely made some. Huh. Yeah, I didn't actually know that. Yep. There are, like, four or five different claimants to having designed the flag of the Continental Army. Ultimately, though, like, when I'm thinking about, like, mythic history, like stuff that almost certainly didn't happen, but gets incorporated into like conceptions of national past and stuff like that. Like it's Arthur. It's everything related to King Arthur. I mean, I think King Arthur is definitely one of the greatest fake kings. Yeah. And like, he's also just such a fascinating figure to dig into like the way that that legend has like morphed and warped over time as different people came to dominate England Part of what I appreciate about Arthur and that you just can't get in the fake histories of the United States is magic. Like, what's fun about Arthur is that it is fundamentally a magic story with Merlin and the Lady of the Lake and all of that. And American history is post-Enlightenment. Yeah, there's no real good magical history. But I think one of the best things about King Arthur, too, is the le- there's so many tied legends that, like, he himself is everything. He goes from, like, the most noble king to just being kind of annoying at times to being washed up and acknowledged as a bad king in some versions. All of which is what makes him interesting to actual historians because you have all those stories telling you about how people in different times perceived the government or understood history or things like that. They become Mm. fascinating cultural documents, even if they shouldn't be treated as historical documents. Right. Oh, I love King Arthur, I gotta say. Every time I'm exposed to King Arthur stuff, I'm like, I feel like I should be all in on this. But, you know, it's the fundamental issue that, like, my kind of nerd, the, like, Marvel Comics Star Wars Expanded Universe nerd, faces when delving into mythology, which is that, like... There's not a prime source to go back to, unless, like, you're, if you're going to read Mallory, that's the closest thing. Like, last summer, we had The Green Knight, and I was like, mm, this is pretty amazing. And, Mark, I don't know if you're aware of Once in Future, which is this great comic that's coming out right now. Okay. About people in England who have to, like, fight against England's mythic history. And it's, like, very much a post-Brexit comic where, like, the undead King Arthur is trying to establish a, like pure Saxon England and, like, drive out all the stuff that doesn't fit. It's pretty great. Well, that's funny, too, because, I mean, in the early legends, King Arthur is fighting the Saxons, specifically. Have you read The Crystal Cave? It's, like, an attempt at realistically telling the Romano-British-specific Arthur, but with some magic. I don't think so. It's interesting. It's, like, mostly based off of Geoffrey Monmouth's telling. Okay, sure. Mm-hmm. And it's like an attempt to make it possible, but just like with a bit of magic, because it is, it's told from Merlin's point of view. Merlin rules. Merlin is great. You know what? I'm thinking about the once and future thing. Arthur is not Saxon. Arthur is specifically like of the Britons and the first people who bring him back are like coded as Brexiteers. And then he kills them because he's like, no, Anglo-Saxons, I don't like them. Right. It's the Welsh that he would be fighting for. Yeah. It's a cool comic. I think you'd really like it. I should check it out. Of course, my first thought was The Mummy. Uh, Ah, What a great (laughs) answer. I can't believe I didn't think of Egypt. I mean, there's so much good Egypt content out there, but 
the story of, you know, Seti the First getting murdered by Emotep so that he could have sex with Seti the First's concubine. Perfect. There, there are just a lot of ways to kill people that don't involve giving them apocalyptic powers. <laughs> just so many ways. Almost all of them, I would say. There's only one way to make that happen. Any other way, and you would not have the mummy. But then I also thought about... um. So, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is set in the Qing Dynasty, and the whole story is fictional, but my favorite part yeah, that's, specifically... that's more of, like, a period fiction is than, that like, fake history. There's a woman that runs a private security firm in Qing Dynasty China. Yeah. That's my favorite, like, outlandish historical inaccuracy in that. I mean, if you're gonna go down that road, I just like watching, like, period set movies and thinking about, like, phrases they use that wouldn't have existed. <laughs> I love reading some of the phrases from Mad Men. Like, true nerds are writing stories like, this wouldn't have been said in 1963. It didn't come into popular use until, like, 1967. So it has been several years, but at some point on this podcast, I shouted out Dr. Bob Nicholson at Digivictorian on Twitter, who is a scholar of 19th century British newspapers and is always posting, like, cool stuff on Twitter, especially from, like, comedy sections of newspapers where like people would mail in jokes (laughs) i have seen those i love them but he has a running thread that's been going on for years where he evaluates the accuracy of presentations of newspapers in movies set in the 19th century which started when the man who invented christmas the movie about the writing of a christmas carol came out but his thread on the greatest showman is especially funny because newspapers play such a big role in that movie And he's, like, going deep on the fact that, like, 19th century newspapers did not even credit the names of journalists, let alone have, like, little head sketches next to their pieces. When did people start getting credited in newspapers? Obviously, I don't expect you to know that off the top of your head. I don't. It's a 20th century thing. But I couldn't say whether it's, like, pre-war or anything. It almost feels like something that would start with celebrity gossip. I have no basis for this, but it would not be surprising to me if it was, like, the first known columnist was someone that was writing about Mary Pickford. Like, Mary Pickford's hair is what led to journalists being credited in newspapers. You gotta know who's got the hottest take on the biograph, girl, Mark. Uh, Mary Pickford. We should do a Mary Pickford movie someday. We should do a a, a Pickford pick. A Pickford pick. I, you know, a lot of them are also like 25 minutes, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's also true. Those very early days did not have the longest films. Although every once in a while it gets annoying. Like, recently I like had a little bit of time to kill. I didn't feel like watching an episode of TV. And I went on HBO and I was like, what Chaplin shorts do they have? Like, I could knock out a Chaplin right now. And all of them, it was like 40 minutes, 40 minutes, 35 minutes. I was like, I need the 17 minute, the tramp falls down a set of stairs and we're done. Just find the train running at you and watch that on repeat. The train coming into the station. You know, I do think A Trip to the Moon is on HBO, and that's like 10 minutes. I have watched A Trip to the Moon. I haven't. It's interesting. I did once look at the Wikipedia page to see if there was any romance. Kinda? There's some sexy moon aliens. It seemed like there wasn't enough to justify an episode. No, not when it's only 10 minutes long. That's if we're like, really, we have 30 minutes to watch and record an episode for tomorrow. Right, that's when we would do that. Yeah. Even then I would still be like, we could we've got 20 minutes. We can watch the immigrant. Oh. <laughs> uh, I don't is that a chaplain one? It's a great chaplain one. Okay. One of the things I love about the immigrant, which is from like 1917, is that there is a whole sequence in it that is about the awkwardness of figuring out who is going to pay the bill at the end of a meal. And it's nice to know that that particular experience is more than a hundred years old. <laughs> I love watching people fight to pay the bill. I think it's always very wholesome and also hilarious. Yeah, it's it's this whole sequence of like people like faux being like, oh no, of course, let me do it. I've seen people physically like brawl to put their credit card down. And that's what I always find very funny. Because the awkwardness of like who's going to pay is just uncomfortable. Especially yeah. in a situation where it's like you're having lunch with old friends of your parents and everyone knows that they're gonna pay but you still kind of have to like reach for your wallet you have to put on the show of it and if they're nice they'll stop you early and just say we'll pay but it is very funny trying to deal with that anyway the immigrant on hbo max 
It's like yes. 17 minutes and it's good. Speaking of other short movies, should we get into this week's episode? Uh, yeah, let's do it. It is not 17 minutes. It is an hour and 17 minutes. I don't even, I think it's like an hour and 12. I think it's an hour 13. Ugh, I was hoping, but it's not. Anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people, or cats, (gasps) even dateable or likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, or if the people it's between kind of change an hour into the movie. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the romance of the 1942 RKO horror classic, Cat People. Had you seen this before? I had not. Me neither. I knew it as a name of a movie, and that's kind of it. I knew it as, I think you must remember this, did a Val Luton series. So I re-listened to it. They did a Val Luton episode. It was episode three of You Must Remember This. Okay, so I listened to that, and that is where I first learned about Cat People. But I'd never seen it. Yeah, I was going to ask you sort of to walk us through why Cat People, because I wrote into our schedule psycho or other horror movie and then you wrote in hereditary and i said great idea we did it three years ago my memory is not great friends and then you said what about cat people so yes talk to us about cat people i must have listened to that episode like re-listened or something relatively recently or maybe it was brought up again in the bella lugosi probably um, val luton certainly would have come up Yeah, so I think it may have been mentioned in that, and I just know of it as, like, a very early on B-movie horror film that kind of helped to kickstart that genre as we know it, and both of us have enjoyed some of the movies. I mean, it helped set the stage for the Dark Universe in its own way. Except the Dark Universe are the Universal movies from the 1930s, and Val Luton kind of looked down on those. I thought that those movies were more in the Moved into the, like, 40s and 50s, but they, I guess, it kind of did span all of that time. So the originals are all, like, early 30s. So Frankenstein, Dracula, The Mummy, those are all, like, 1932, 1933, around that window. Mm-hmm. Some of the sequels come out over the course of the 30s, and they're kind of trailing off. The, the monster movie trend is dying until in 1941, Frankenstein and Dracula were re-released as a double bill. And it was, like, one of the biggest movies of the year. Hmm. It did hugely. And so then Universal starts putting a bunch more stuff into development. That's when they start developing, like, the Wolfman and all the second-generation Universal monsters. Wolfman comes out 1942, the same year as Cat People. And at RKO, they say, you know what? This horror thing, it's not going away. It's a good way to make money without spending a lot of money. And so they put Val Luton in charge of that division, and they say, make us some horror movies. And I did, I always was intrigued because that comes up a lot is this movie started the trend of not showing you the monster and it was mostly the result of budget, but that's such an important part of horror to this day of hiding the monster. It's really what sets the RKO movies apart from the Universal Mm -hmm. ones. Right, like we don't see the cat until like the last 30 seconds. And also it is just a leopard. It's not like a monster. Um, excuse you, the panther, panther is the beast of the apocalypse. <laughs> that zookeeper was saying some of the weirdest things about panthers. Not even the zookeeper. He is like the janitor at the zoo explains that panthers are the beast of the apocalypse because in the book of Revelation, there's something about like a leopard that's different. And he's like, doesn't that look like a leopard that's different? Well, I mean, isn't that isn't a panther just a leopard that is different? Yeah, like genetically. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I can't remember. Panthers are not a species. Correct. They are, yeah, a melanistic color variant of the leopard or jaguar. But they are just a leopard that is different. So he's kind of right. He's not wrong scientifically. Yeah. So, again, now you know panthers are the beast of the apocalypse. So, uh, tell me... Like, how how did you experience Cat People, or what did you think of it? I was really into it at first, 
because it's so ridiculous. It kind of dragged in the middle. And yes. then it's only an hour 13. So I don't know how they managed to make it so slow <laughs> in the middle. But I did. I am glad we watched it because I do see how it set the stage for a lot of later horror. Yeah. I watched this over two nights because I looked at the runtime and was like, 72 minutes? I can start that at like 10.30 and still be done and in bed by midnight. And then I watched half of it and I was like, never mind, I'm tired. Yeah, I can see that. So the first night when I watched the first half of the movie, I was like, this is kind of boring. And it felt like they were trying to, almost trying to do like Hitchcock or or something like Gaslight even. Like very much like, a suspensey drama, but very much a domestic suspensey drama, mm. which fits in with Luton's kind of idea. Luton really wanted to, if he's going to make monster movies, make them not be much of a monster movie and instead focus on like issues that people were facing living in the 1940s and put enough monster stuff in to satisfy RKO. I mean, the real monster of this movie is women in the workplace. Right. <laughs> and like, for me also, I love those universal movies. Like, I love Frankenstein and Dracula and... They're great movies! A couple weeks ago, I was watching Island of Lost Souls, which is Universal's Island of Dr. Moreau adaptation. And I really want us to do that because that movie is great. It's a monster movie. It's about why imperialism is bad. It's a little bit about miscegenation being scary. So that's less good. So I, I came out of night one of cat people being like, this is dull and I'm annoyed that I have to finish it. Night two, I start basically at the point where Oliver and Alice announce that they're in love with each other. So I watch the movie from that point, and I'm like, now this movie is great. This movie that is all, like, people feeling like they're being stalked by an off-screen panther, and, like, the really striking lighting work of it, where there's all these, like, deep shadows and sometimes, like, practically white shots, and there's a weird dream sequence of, like, animated cats, and you're like, of course, this has the same editor as Orson Welles' movies. And so I genuinely don't know, like, was I in the wrong mood the first night or it just is the first half of this movie boring and then it gets good once it becomes more of the kind of monster movie that I like. So I love the beginning because it's just so ridiculous of her just like at the zoo throwing paper around and then he's basically like, I love you. I'm really into it as long as it's telling me nonsense Serbian history. And then we get that part and I loved it because I was like, what the actual are you talking about and then i also love the idea that there is in new york at a cafe another woman who comes from the same small village of serbia well you got to remember this movie is set in it's set in little belgrade oh yes of course it's so the story is so weird just to give a rundown of the curse of the main character, played by Simone Simon, she comes from a village in Serbia that, when it was under the Ottomans... No, she doesn't say Ottomans, she says Mamluks. The Mamluks, of course. Which would be pre-Ottoman. Yeah. But I'll let that one kind of slide because I will allow for European characters and American screenwriters conflating Muslim empires. Yeah. They're wrong, but I'm not surprised. That is a very good description. Yeah, so under the Mamluk rule, which never reached Serbia, the good Christian Serbians in this mountain village were no longer allowed to openly worship and fell into Satan worship, which then gave the women the power to turn into cats. It says they became witches. They became witches. And they then had the power slash curse to turn into a cat anytime they experienced intense emotion. And as a result, she never kisses her husband, which I guess is presumably means they're also not having sex. They're like definitely not having sex. Six months into their marriage. Yeah, no, they are absolutely not having sex. That's the subtext of this whole movie. Yeah, I mean, the villain here is women in the workplace and also sexual repression in a marriage is bad. Sexual repression in a marriage is bad, but it's also like the ostensible protagonist, Irena, is a woman who is like terrified of her sexuality. She's terrified of expressing herself romantically or sexually because of the fear that it could lead people to die. It's so wild. Oh, and then good King John of Serbia shows up and like 
tries to kill all the witches, but the curse remains. He also, in the movie, it is said that he drove the Mamluks out. Like, there is this... uh, it's a very interesting reading of Serbian history and all of this. Of good King John who drove out the Mamluks and discovered that they had left behind people worshipping witches instead of the Lord God. Like, to be fair, the 1940s were a very different time in Serbian history than people living in the post-1990s. I don't know if you can call this a reading of Serbian history. Because no one ever opened a book. That is true. For what it's worth... Uh, King John of Serbia is sort of a real person. His name was Jovin Nenad. He was known as Jovin the Black because of a birthmark that he had. And he was the leader of the last independent Serbian state before the Ottomans took over. It's just so wrong (laughs) that it can't be the same person. I feel like it has to be, though, because, like, King John butting up right against the Ottoman conquest. I mean, here's the thing. You throw a thing at a dartboard in the 1940s king in name, they're probably going to come up with John, but... The fact that she has the statue is also so weird. The statue of, of King John astride a horse with his sword held up vertically and a, and a dead cat slid almost all the way down to the hilt. Pretty cool statue. I yeah, cool say. statue. And when we meet her, she's at the zoo. We're told she's in, like, fashion design or something, right? Yeah, that's why she's doing all those sketches all the time. But she's sketching, like, a brooch that is a sword going through a panther. And she's doing that based off of looking at a real panther at the zoo. Yeah, you want to make sure that it's accurate. This is the first of Val Luton's horror movies at RKO. And it's the kind of thing where he had been working for David O. Selznick for a long time as... Today, basically, what we would call, like, an assistant producer. He wasn't getting a lot of credit for stuff that he did, like, working on big movies, where he helped design scenes in Gone with the Wind and stuff like that and didn't really get credit. A lot of this stuff about Val Luton comes from that. You must remember this episode. And he was put in charge of making these low-budget horror movies for RKO, and this was the first one that they put together, shooting it largely on pre-existing sets. Like, all of the, like, interior apartment scenes in this are the sets from the Magnificent Ambersons? Uh, I mean, it does explain why a single woman working in fashion design somehow lives in a magnificent palatial apartment in New York City. Yeah, that's why, because it's the set they had. There are different stories about where the idea for the movie came from. Uh, the director, Jacques Turneau, said that Val Luton called him to make the movie after the RKO studio chief was at a party where someone told him to make a movie called Cat People. The screenwriter, DeWitt Bodine, said that they were tasked to come up with horror movies. And he's like, look, werewolves being done at Universal with the Wolfman. Vampires, overdone. Zombies, overdone. No one's done anything with cats. And I would say it's probably because cats are a little less scary. Yeah. Now, in Island of Lost Souls, which is 10 years before this, they do have the panther woman. I mean, if you do have a cat, like a where cat i feel like it has to be a woman they specifically described simone simone as being chosen because she had like a kitten face they said they needed something that was very sweet to really capture the horror of you know there, there's a cat-like quality but she doesn't want to be the monster by all accounts she was kind of uh difficult on set and you look at basically any movie that simone simone worked on and there are stories of her being difficult on set to the point of having been fired off of her first movie in the United States. In that case, she said she was stirring up trouble because Marlena Dietrich told her that a star is only as important as she makes herself out to be. I mean, it worked for her, but I think <laughs> I think you have to have some star quality before you start pulling that card. Yeah, and Simone Simone has this weird career where like she'll crop up, she'll be in a bunch of movies for a while, and then not be in as much or go back to France and then come back in these waves. And so she occupied this, like, hazy space in the public consciousness to the point where, like, people were vaguely aware of her but not quite sure what her deal was. A lot of Americans did not realize that she was a French movie star before she came to the United States to the point that there were rumors she was the love child of William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies. That is weird. Right? (laughs) People could just say anything they wanted. They could say anything. I love it. The movie was a big hit. Which is in part easier because they were dirt cheap. Basically, the rules for Luton Productions was they had to be cheap, there had to be some kind of monster quality, and they had to cost less than $150,000. 
I think that this movie has one of the most interesting. I haven't seen it, but I read the summary. Um, You're talking about the sequel? Mood shifts in a sequel. Yeah, in 1944's The Curse of the Cat People, it follows Oliver's daughter as she befriends Irena's ghost. It sounds really weird, and I kind of want to watch it. I mean, it is also short and also on archive.org. Yeah, that might be a fun project for another day. In addition to the 94 sequel, there's also a 1982 remake directed by Paul Schrader, which is a weird choice. Yeah, I wonder how that is. I don't think it was well received. It was actually received decently well for oh, like interesting. a monster movie in the 1980s. Um, I like a lot of Paul Schrader movies. Like, I liked The Card Counter. I loved First Reformed. Paul Schrader is a maniac. <laughs> and he is very active on Facebook in the way only an old man can be. And uh, I do not follow Paul Schrader on Facebook because I don't need that. But I do follow a Twitter account that just posts screenshots of all of his Facebook posts. And they're pretty great. I did know about this. Yeah. And, like, to be fair, like, they are great as, like, look at this, like, weirdo. Sometimes it's, like, him posting stuff about making movies. Sometimes it's him complaining about having been kicked out of Paul Dano's pandemic Zoom poker group because they decided he did not respect women, which is likely true. That is a weird story. (laughs) Right. Like, all of those words go together and you're like, I don't disbelieve that, but I didn't expect to hear them in that sequence. Yeah, I am not surprised at all, but I'm kind of impressed that they also kicked him out for it. Yeah, well, I mean, Paul Dano seems like a good dude. It must be really bad. Yes. Ugh. Maybe we should watch that. What, Paul Schrader's Cat People? Yeah. I mean, I would do it. I'm assuming there's a lot more of the cat. Probably. And, like, there's not a lot of cat in this one, in part because, like, Val Luton doesn't care about the monsters. No, not at all. I would be interested. I was kind of disappointed to see that there was no, like, cat person, like, in the promotional material where she's halfway between person and cat. That's what I want. I, like, and that's where I'm like, Val Luton, like, I get that, like, you think the Universal Monster movies are formulaic and cheesy, but I like the Universal Monster movies. I like their, like, just, like, tortured monster thing i like the wolfman i think i like this second half of cat people more than i like anything in the wolfman but i like the first half of the wolfman a lot better than i like the first half of this movie because the first half of the wolfman is like a traveling roma carnival and like people being cursed to be werewolves i didn't realize that that one was bad to be honest i think it's the weakest of the big ones but i did think that this movie really picked up and it was tried to be very artfully done, but I really could have used a bit more monster. But I do appreciate the idea of saving your monster for an important moment. Sure, I mean, that's been done well in a lot of cases, but when you're doing that, that means that a lot more of the movie is going to hang on your performances, and I do think a lot of the performances in Cat People are kind of weak. Yeah, they could have... They could have been better. Like, the strongest performance is probably Tom Conway as the psychiatrist, but his character is super weird. I loved him because I had no idea what was going on with him. Like, Simone Simone, the whole time I was thinking, like, I was thinking about Gaslight. I was like, what if this were Ingrid Bergman? Like, what if we had, like, a great actress doing this character? I mean, imagine if we just had the two people from Gaslight reverse roles in a way. I mean, yeah, that would be that would be great. I would love that. Because the man in this is kind of the ingenue, almost. Because he's like, you know, the an innocent man who gets caught up in the web of this cursed woman. She's just also not in control of her curse. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. And then, like, he has to go with, like, the more sensible choice after having gone to, like, the exotic option. That's very interesting. Yeah. And obviously, it will be good because then Alice will stop working and she'll go back to the home. <laughs> because you can't trust a woman in the workplace to not steal your man. Well, she says, you know, when he tells her that's you're really swell, she says, that's what makes me dangerous. I'm the new type of other woman. Just a cool lady who works with you. Yeah, just a friend. Imagine that. Ugh, I love her 
And mostly because some of the things she does, like go swimming at night in her apartment's basement pool, are so weird and so funny. That's a really cool sequence, though. It is. But also, what a weird pool. And I love how she just jumps in and isn't really swimming. She's just kind of like floating there, even before the panther noises. It's also one of those things where like, yes, it's a set, but it's also just a reminder of like how different some aspects of life were where like, yeah, I guess that is like what a building swimming pool would look like. Or when you're at the zoo and you're like, oh, right. A lot of our cultural ideas about zoos in stories of like an animal getting loose from a zoo or kids getting caught in zoo cages, like were possible in the horrible torture zoos of the 1940s in a way that they are not possible now. That zoo is so depressing. And, like, today, yeah, it would be weird if a kid got into where the lions are. But in a zoo like that, obviously that could happen. Especially if you have the groundskeeper just leaving his key in the cage. Well, I mean, you would run away, too, if you saw the Beast of the Apocalypse. Oh, what? It, his song was so weird, too. I don't remember it, but I just remember being confused by it. That man made zero sense at any moment. Well... Sense is our main goal, so I think we should probably move on to talking about the romance of cat people. Oh yes, I think we should. We've covered a fair deal of it, but there's more to get into. So every week we do break down the romantic plotline into five points to guide the conversation. So to start with point one, we are at the zoo. Yeah, that's where we meet our Serbian immigrant Irena as she's sketching this panther brooch. And is approached by a man, basically for littering. I almost said looting. She's not looting. But she's throwing her papers at the trash can and missing, and he, like, comes over and is like, you should put this in the trash can. Yeah, but he's flirting. But he's definitely flirting about it. And then she misses again, and he does, like, an alley-oop tight situation. And then they're in love. (laughs) Yeah, she invites him to, like, come into her apartment. She explains that he is her first friend here in New York since she immigrated from Serbia. Right, and this already kind of brings us into point two, which is where they are building their relationship. Again, not a very long movie. Not a very long movie, but also, like, emotions change on a dime. Immediately, immediately, people are in and out of love. And this is, again, where if we had stronger performances, those tumultuous emotions might be conveyed more effectively. And instead here, while, again, I think some of the filmmaking is really compelling, the cinematography, the editing are really cool, especially in the second half. With these performances, it just feels like you can't follow what's going on. Yeah, I did feel a little lost. I thought the flirting into the relationship was more effective than the, like, beginning of the relationship into a serious relationship. Yes, Their flirty banter worked for me. Like, I understood why she invited him over. I understood why she had, like, they had tea together. I didn't really understand when this jumped to, like, passionate love, but neither of them ever seemed that passionate, so that kind of plays into it. Well, I can tell you when it happens. It's 14 minutes into the movie is when they confess their love to each other. Oh, my God. Zippy. Zippy little movie. Yeah, at this point, she's already explained her whole, like, revanchist history of Serbia, and how the, the Muslims destroyed everything. Are you admiring my statue? Yeah, not exactly. Who's it supposed to be? King John. Oh, King John. The Magna Carta and all that stuff. Oh, no. King John of Serbia. He was a fine king. He drove the Mamelukes out of Serbia and freed the people. Well, why have this around? Well, perhaps you have in your room a picture of George Washington or Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> well, what does it mean? Why is he, why is he spearing that cat? Oh, it's not really a cat. It's meant to represent the evil ways into which my village had once fallen. You see, the Mamelukes came to Serbia long ago, and they made the people slaves. Well, at first, the people were good and worshipped God in a true Christian way. But uh, little by little, the people changed. When King John drove out the Mamelukes, and came to our village, he found dreadful things. People bowed down to Satan and said their masses to him. They had become witches and were evil. But King John put some of them to the sword, but some, the wisest and the most wicked, 
escaped into the mountains. Now, do you understand? I don't know if I'd call it a revanchist history, because it is at the point where it's just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) But yeah, so 14 minutes into the movie, they confess that they're in love with each other. And he's basically like, feels like uh, we should do something about being in love. And she's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, we haven't haven't even kissed. Like, we have not kissed. American girls kiss. I wrote it down. When people in America are in love, or even think they're in love, They've usually kissed by now. I just like, his deal is like, he wants to be kissing and he's not getting it. Which, why does he stick around as long as he does? Like, come on, let's get some kissing in here. This movie has, I think, one kiss and it is bad, but deliberately so in a comical way. Yeah. It's, oh my God, this movie. So they confess their love to each other. and That already kind of brings us to point three where they are now married. Because it happens very quickly. It basically cuts to their marriage. Like, there's one scene in between where the zoo janitor explains that panthers are the beast of the apocalypse. And then the next scene is their wedding dinner. Which I don't mind. I don't mind, like, moving efficiently through these things. We talked about it as being a good thing in something like Sylvie's Love. Mm -hmm. But you know what Sylvie's Love has? (laughs) Better performances. (laughs) Yeah, Sylvie's Love has Tessa Thompson. So, they are now in a marriage... It is, they're at their wedding dinner, and another Serbian woman walks into the restaurant. I could tell they also cast her to have a feline air. Oh, you know what we haven't mentioned? For date number two, he brings her a pet cat. Oh my god, I forgot about that. The cat immediately, like, hisses at her. And then they go to the pet store, and every to exchange animal exchange it for freaks. a different animal. The exchange policy of this store, baffling to me. I bought a cat. Can I please have a parakeet? Yeah, sure, okay. But yeah, so they're getting married now. They're married. There's, there's this lady in the restaurant. She walks up and says, like, my sister in Serbian, theoretically, would not be surprised if uh, it was wrong. I assume it's nonsense. But she does look very cat-like. What did that woman say to you, darling? What did she say? <laughs> now, wait a minute. It can't be that serious. Just one single word. She greeted me. Call me sister. And this really spooks Irena. She's like, I do not like this. So now we are at the point where they do not consummate the marriage. Right, which we're not told explicitly, but we do know that they go home and sleep in separate rooms. And it becomes increasingly clear over the course of the movie that they have never kissed because she fears, according to the curse of her people, that... If she were to kiss or otherwise romantically engage with someone she loved, then she would turn into a cat person and kill them. Which, maybe you shouldn't get married if you're worried about that, because it's kind of unfair to your partner. And her thing was, I think her parents died mysteriously in the woods or something? Yeah, it was unclear, but she is a uh, orphan for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I think we're supposed to read into it that her mom turned into a cat person and killed her dad. Yeah. And then, I guess, gave birth after the one lovemaking session. I guess. So, that's kind of where that is. They're married. And now, the next big thing is that 35 minutes into this movie, his co-worker, Alice, professes that she's in love with him. And that brings us to point four, where jealousy strikes. Okay. So, Alice says that she's in love with Oliver. And at that point, Oliver says he doesn't know what love is anymore. I kind of get it. His head's been messed with. He still hasn't been kissed. He still hasn't been kissed. He does have the kind of rational idea of sending his wife to therapy. Yeah, uh, very progressive, 1942. He gets a psychiatrist who does not seem like a very bad psychiatrist. No, he's just kind of weird. Yeah. But I think that's more on the performance than the actual (laughs) character. It's a strange character. But it's great. I love him. But he, like, kind of is, you know, the rational man and says, like, oh, your fear about this is actually tied to childhood trauma in a classic Freudian move. Now, Tom Conway does play this character in a later Luton movie and references having dealt with a very troubled woman, which doesn't make sense because he is killed in this movie. Yeah, he died. He's the only one that dies. I guess it's like how in the book of The Lost World, 
they bring back Ian Malcolm because that character really popped in the Jurassic Park movie. Oh, right. Or uh, there's also other things where, you know, people are just kind of there because they're popular. But the first major turn in their marriage is because of Alice, where he gets the reference for the psychiatrist from Alice. Yes. And Irena gets very upset that he has talked about her condition to someone else. Right. This is where it really feels like Oliver is starting to align more with Alice than Irena. And that snowballs when they, like, are all going out together and, like, they go to the museum and Oliver and Alice are looking at stuff and they're like, oh, Irena, you can, like, go off and look at other stuff on your own. Yeah, it's very obvious. And she, as a result, gets jealous and starts kind of stalking Alice. Yeah, she terrorizes her in the swimming pool. What is the matter, Alice? What bothers Miss Moore? Gee whiz, dearie, are you all right? It's nothing. It was dark down here and Mrs. Reed coming in unexpectedly frightened me. I'm terribly sorry. Now don't go, I'm coming right out. Sorry to have disturbed you, Alice. I missed you and Oliver, and I thought you might know where he is. We waited for you at the museum. You'll probably find him at home. If you don't mind, then, I'll run on. She terrorizes her in the swimming pool. She follows her around. She's, like, transforming into a panther and back. It's very cool. But we're also told, and this is kind of what's interesting about her versus some of those monsters, although really a lot of the universal monsters also are getting into that, like, who is the monster and who is the man kind of question. But, like, not only does she not want to be a monster in the same way that, like, the Wolfman does, she doesn't even remember it. Like, she keeps talking about these gaps in her memory. Yeah, she doesn't actually know that she is stalking her as a panther. She does know that, you know, she is stalking her as a woman. As a woman. A woman. But, yeah, it's just when these intense emotions kick in. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to point five, where it all comes to a head as Oliver, you know. Well, to kick things off, 58 minutes into this movie, Oliver tells Irena, he says, listen, Irena, we need to talk. I had to learn, maybe through this marriage of ours, I love Alice. Yeah, which is the worst way you can phrase it. (laughs) A horrible thing to say to a person. Just awful. And there is a great thing where, like, he says that, then leaves to go be with Alice, and she just, like, is holding onto the couch and drags her hand down the couch cushion and, like, claws into it the way that a cat's paw would. It's, like, it's the kind of cool, small touch that the movie is capable of in that second half. Yes. It's a great touch, but they are now at work, and Irena kind of goes and, I guess, panthers out on them at this point. This is the coolest scene in terms of lighting where... You never see the full body of the panther. Like, it's it's so darkly lit for most of the scene that you just have, like, shadows sliding over one another. Which is something Luton was really into. He's like, look, nothing scarier than darkness because there can be anything there. And then that's contrasting with Alice and Oliver against the wall, which is just stark white. And so it's, like, the two of them on the brightest wall possible indoors. And the rest of it is just, like, shadows moving on top of each other. It's very, very cool. Yeah. Oh, uh, but then she kills the doctor after he confesses his love for her. Yeah, the doctor has been has become fascinated by her case because he's like, look at this deluded woman who thinks that she'll turn into a cat person. I'm sorry, Oliver. If you pursue further psychiatric treatment, you will not be able to be with Alice because, quote, the law is quite explicit. One cannot divorce an insane person. Oh, right, because at this time, basically, you know, a husband can lock up his wife with no real reason, but it does mean that he cannot divorce her if she is in the mental hospital. Right. It's a real catch-22. But yeah, the doctor just tries to kisses her. He's trying to convince her. She's like, I can't kiss anybody. I will turn into a cat lady and murder them. And he's like, only if you're in love with them, right? And she's like, maybe? And he's like, well, are you in love with me? And she's like, "I, I don't think so. He's like, well, then kiss me. And he goes to kiss her. And it is like a horrible kiss but it feels deliberate or she's completely unresponsive like she doesn't actually move her body her eyes are wide open 
it's like he's trying to make out with her and she is a statue. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's some bad kissing in all pre-code or post-code movies. But this is deliberate. Deliberate. But then he dies. (laughs) Yeah, she does turn into a panther and kill him. The neighbors find his body and are extremely relaxed about it. Yeah, weirdly so. This is a weird movie. He has a, a like a sword in his walking stick and he like tries to fight her off and in the process during the fight they both get stabbed and she like runs off and makes it to the zoo before like staggering to her death outside the panther cave. Yeah, cuz she like lets the panther out for some reason. And now Oliver and Alice can be together. Yeah, cuz she dies by panther attack <laughs> and then the panther dies. <laughs> Hooray! Hooray! I am glad we watched this. I am too. I think it's a good, like, hole in our movie history that we've filled. I think if you've seen none of the monster movies, I would go to the Universal ones. Yes. But this is a cool thing to have in conversation with them. I also just love Oliver's line of, she never lied to us. (laughs) It's like, I, I guess. I don't think it was an issue of lying, like... She believed it to be true, but she wasn't like, I am a cat person. She was like, this could happen. I just think also that if you cannot express your love for a person you are marrying in a way that they like, such as if they want to kiss you and you can't kiss them, maybe you shouldn't be together. I also think if you're trying to figure out whether you are in love with someone, marrying a different person is not the move. (sighs) He's not a great guy. No. So, do you find the romance of this movie believable? Yeah, it's broadly believable. It's broadly believable for the time, but also the performances are not selling me that hard. I am feeling like a 7 or an 8 on this. Really? I don't know, man. Like, quick relationships make sense. I mean, I just think that, like... all Some tracks. of the stuff that's frustrating us, like, look, kissing is good, and, and this relationship doesn't have kissing in it, which is a problem. But, like, also, there is the whole thing of, like, the subtext of the movie is this woman who is afraid that her sexuality, like, will lead to people dying. Well, correctly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you're not wrong. People do die. But, like, that is getting at, like, it's, it's reflective of a repressed culture. Mm-hmm. And... Especially for a woman who's been isolated in this way. She's an orphan. She has no friends. She's, like, afraid of other people from her country. I th- I think I'm probably, like, a seven on this. Okay. Yeah, you've sold me. I was going to lean towards six, but I buy it. All right, cool. Um, do you think that any of these three people is dateable? Maybe Alice. Alice seems kind of cool. Alice seems kind of cool. She's fun. She's flirty. She's a professional lady. She's... Got a job doing, I love, it's such a, like, 1942 thing, a vague military job to explain why he is not in the war. Yes, well, you've got to understand why this man is not a coward. Yeah, because they're, like, designing ships for the Navy. But yeah, the other two, Oliver, kind of a scumbag in how quickly he just says, like, I needed to fall in love with you so that I could find my true soulmate. Yeah, it it makes me kind of concerned. Like, this is getting to the next question. I don't know that I trust him to stay with Alice. Yeah, I don't either. Like, that is a longer lasting and it seems like a more meaningful relationship than he ever had with Irena. Like, it does seem like they really, like, he and Alice really like each other and get along well. But also, like, there's a decent chance that he drops her the next time another woman looks at him. Yeah, I don't think they'll stay together. I don't think Irena is dateable because she is um, cursed by an ancient evil. Uh, yeah. If you did have to pick someone in this movie to date, who would you choose? Um, I don't know. They're all kind of weird. Like, I want to say the zookeeper guy, but also... I think you're not religious enough for him. I don't think I'm religious enough. I'm going to go with just Alice. Yeah. I was trying to think if there was anybody else. No one else has enough of a presence. And even the people who don't, like, sometimes we'll pick someone who just, like, popped on screen, but, like, had one line. There's nobody like that, even. Yeah, because, like, I wouldn't want to date the other Catwoman. No. It's got to be Alice. Now, Will. Many of the movies we cover are made into musicals. Should there be a Cat People musical? 
as always, I want to hear your answer first. Yes. I think that it actually could be very fun to have a domestic drama musical heightened even further with the introduction of an ancient evil curse that causes her to turn into a cat person. Yeah, I just wonder, like, I wonder how you would do the actual cat stuff because I think the strongest stuff in this movie is its cinematography of suggestion. Yeah. They don't give us the satisfaction of seeing a person in a cat person costume. Using a live panther every night. Oh, and they just kill a panther every night on stage. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that sounds sustainable. There is not a Cat People musical, but for the 1982 remake directed by Paul Schrader, they had an original song, a Golden Globe nominated original song written by David Bowie. Oh, weird. It's called Cat People parentheses putting out fire. Well, now I have to go listen to that. I don't you? Wow. All right, Will. I think that's about it for Cat People. If you are interested in Hollywood history and have an hour and 13 minutes, I'd recommend it. But if you've never watched a classic horror film, there's better places to start. Do like Bride of Frankenstein or Dracula uh, or, yeah. you know, I am I am really jazzed about Island of Lost Souls these days. But Bride of Frankenstein is probably the gayest of them, so <laughs> I sure. always recommend that. Speaking of gay movies, <laughs> next week we are going to be talking about the brand new film Fire Island, which will be out on Hulu. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Will. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from cat people? Kissing is really important. And a relationship that doesn't have kissing in it, it might not last. My advice, you can flirt and clean up your surroundings at the same time. That's the environmental choice. All right. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.